Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... годом вас. С новым веком. Алексей Навальный не только создал движение, он создал сетевую. He's created a massive, horizontally integrated civic organization spanning Russia's 11 time zones. This represents an unprecedented feat of civic organizing. But with Navalny now facing years in prison, the question remains, can his network survive without its leader? Can Navalny's power horizontal continue to challenge Vladimir Putin's power vertical? And how effective are Western sanctions at raising the cost of the Putin regime's repression against Navalny and his organization? Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor here at UTA's McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from London is Vladimir Ashurkov, executive director of Navalny's anti Corruption Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Vladimir. It's great to have you on. Hello, Brian. Thank you for this uh, enticing introduction. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. And also joining us from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood, which happens to be down the street from my neighborhood, is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegabaya. Maria is a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Welcome back, Maria. Those certainly are a lot of affiliations you have. That's true. Thanks a lot for having us, Brian. This, this is what we do in D.C. We collect affiliations. Um, Vladimir, I want to begin with you, since you are indeed the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Foundation, this very impressive organization that Alexei Navalny has created. Now, Navalny, of course, is in prison due to what, of course, are trumped up charges and a trumped up politically motivated criminal case. The Anti-Corruption Foundation is experiencing financial hardship due to politically motivated rulings in politically motivated civil lawsuits. The Russian security services are cracking down on the foundation's branches and members across Russia. What is the future for the foundation for this vast and very impressive network that Alexei Navalny has created and animated with you? I think before we start into the delving into the current situation and the challenges that we're facing, I think it's important to keep in mind the big picture of what our strategy is and uh, what we're trying to achieve and what our approach to engagement in Russian politics is. We always try to be very down to earth, very realistic, very pragmatic, and our sort of approach is as follows. We understand that the democratic forces now in Russia are too weak to take the regime of Vladimir Putin heads on. Our opponents have all the legislative power, all the law enforcement, unlimited financial resources, and uh, the political field, the political environment in Russia has been bulldozed for over 20 years. At the same time, we see that the seemingly stable 
system of economic and political corruption that Mr. Putin and his associates have put in place in Russia over the last 15 years is really cracking in many places. So our strategy is to be the most organized political force when a political crisis, which is inevitable in this situation, will strike. We don't have a time frame for that. It can happen in five years. It can happen in two years. It can happen in 10 years. Our goal is to gradually gain strength, gradually gain recognition, increase the number of supporters, build the strength of our organization, and so that we're prepared when the time comes so that we will have a seat at the table where the future of Russia will be decided. Yeah, and you are known for playing this very long game in Russia. Um, and Alexei Navalny has said that himself several times. So have you. And it's, it is really the only game to play against this kind of regime. And Maria and I are often talking about how we, we feel we're, we're moving into this stage of late Putinism, this protracted period of stagnation and zastoy. And I think that that is definitely the right strategy to play this long game. But do you have a strategy for resisting the current wave of repression? that has been being waged against the Anti-Corruption Foundation, against Alexei Navalny himself, of course, but also against the organization with these frivolous lawsuits that are attempting to bankrupt the organization. And it makes it hard to play a long game if the Kremlin succeeds in destroying the organization. Well, in some aspects, the today's situation is unprecedented in that Alexei Navalny is in jail and his verdict is set at two years and eight months. A few of our senior members are under house arrest. The level of repression of uh, against political opposition and civil actors in Russia has you know, increased in the last years. But at the same time, some things are in our favor. Our organization has never been more numerous. We have over 200 people on full-time payroll in Russia. We have branches in over 50 cities. We have the strength to get out hundreds of thousands of people during mass protests across over 100 uh, towns and cities in Russia. The media product that we put out has seen unprecedented number of views with the latest Putin's palace video clocking over 110 million views. In terms of financial difficulties, we had those before, but we always were able to overcome it by adjusting our legal structure and by raising additional funds. The ratings of Putin and of United Russia, the party of power in charge in Russia are at their lowest. So the situation is unprecedented, but it's not all bad and black. Let's bring Maria into the discussion here. Now, Maria, you, um, you, I mean, you follow, you study political and social change for a living. And I know you've been following the situation in, in your home country, Russia, very closely. How do you see this playing out? Do you think this organization, because I, the way I see this, Navalny's created a power horizontal. The power horizontal is fighting the power vertical. And this is kind of unprecedented in Russia that we have had such a integrated, independent, civic organization 
that not only has no support from the state, but is operating in opposition to the state. It's under pressure right now. How do you see this playing out? Thanks a lot, Brian. And Vladimir, of course, knows much more on this topic. Uh, but I did have an opportunity to talk a little bit to some of my uh, friends from uh, Navalny's offices in the region ahead of this broadcast. And one thing I wanted to point out to our audience, that opponents of Alexei Navalny commonly portray him, you know, as this allegedly authoritarian leaders. Everyone is allegedly afraid of his authoritarian tendencies. I think this cannot be further from truth. Because Navalny is one of the most successful politicians in uh, today's Russia in his capacity precisely, as you emphasize, to build this horizontal uh, network. And he's also doing that, by the way, uh, with an extremely hostile environment, but not just without any help uh, from the government, but actually uh, being actively persecuted by the government. So what is the key essence of this horizontal network? So first of all, Alexei Navalny is definitely the first and only a political leader in Russia uh, to build a de facto, like this party system across the regions, uh, even if, of course, uh, uh, the Kremlin actively resists uh, development uh, of the system. But most important feature of these uh, offices in the regions is that they're actually acting quite autonomously, particularly after 2018. Uh, because, of course, as Vladimir said, everyone understands a very hostile environment in which these offices operate. They were intentionally designed by Alexei Navalny and uh, Leonid Volkov, to be able to survive without Alexei's leadership. They are working quite independently, conduct all investigations as well as collect donations without a direct relationship to the Moscow office or to Alexei Navalny directly. So that actually allows them to sustain a certain financial autonomy. Uh, so, for example, my colleagues, uh, the colleagues from Irkutsk, uh, Sergei Vispalov, uh, the leader of the Irkutsk uh, Navalny's office, unfortunately currently in exile uh, because there's a criminal investigation against him, and also Dakar Sarapulov, they say that they actually see that this system uh, is actually quite resilient uh, to attacks on the side of the authorities precisely because it's so autonomous and works independently of Alexei Navalny or even uh, Moscow office uh, in the first place. In addition, uh, because of everything that's going on with Alexei Navalny and the protests uh, that took place in January, they actually see a significant increase in uh, donations lately. So if anything, they are doing... Uh, I mean, given the circumstances, quite well. And uh, because of that, partly, and also because of the fact that, uh, as Vladimir has demonstrated, Putin's power vertical is starting to crumble a little bit. Uh, they're actually planning to expand quite actively, and Leonid Volkov just announced the plans to open 10 more regional offices across Russia. So uh, essentially, to put this uh, shortly, there's definitely quite unpleasant developments and, you know, kudos to Navalny and his team who continue to courageously fight in this environment. But things are not as black and white. There's actually quite serious resilience uh, on this network of the regional offices of Alexei Navalny. And they have recently witnessed an increase in interest on the side of Russians, partly as, of course, uh, the side effect of the intensified repressions on the Kremlin. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on one point you made, Maria, and get Vladimir's thoughts on it. And that is that they've created an organization explicitly and intentionally that could survive without Navalny, that this organization would continue if, you know, there were no Alexei Navalny. And I, I think that's admirable and that's impressive and that's important. But one has to wonder in an organization and recognizing that it is an organization that is about more than just Navalny. Navalny is an incredibly charismatic figure. 
who has a lot of kind of personal magnetism and the ability to get people on the streets. And Vladimir, I was wondering, like, what kind of adjustments do you have to make to fill that considerable gap that is missing in the organization? As impressive as the organization is and, you know, this horizontal network is and how resilient it is, you still have to kind of make up for this loss of something that is, you know, the incredible charisma that Navalny possesses and that has animated this movement. I, for one, am having a trouble imagining your next anti-corruption video against whomever the target may be without Navalny reading it in that just very clever, funny, engaging way that he does. So, Vladimir, I was wondering, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Brian, you like to get into this nitty-gritty of the daily tactics of our organization. But I think the, the focus, if we take this granularity too low, we will not get at the right picture. I, again, I would like to bring us to the, the big picture. The political scientists will analyze our movement and they will write books about it in detail but maybe, when maybe you're in the political scientists on this on this podcast might do that someday but go ahead absolutely <laughs> i'm sure but when you're in the moment it's very difficult to pinpoint what exactly works and what follows what you know i come from the business world and uh, they say for instance in you know stock trading if you succeed 60% of the time and make mistakes 40% of the time, you still will be a billionaire. So we do everything by trial and error. Of course, we put a lot of thought into what we do, but we're really in some sort of uncharted territory in terms of political strategy. So we try to do what we can, and our strategy has traditionally been flexible, and I think that's what gave us this, uh, you know, measure of relative success in Russia. We have always played on different, uh, as I say, chessboards. We do investigations, first carpet investigations that Navalny started with, then investigations into officials, into their hypocrisy and luxurious lifestyles and corruption. We turned ourselves into a media, let's say, empire, with our videos having a lot of views, with other formats that we use uh, being quite popular. We have created a political network, the regional network, in more than 50 towns of Russia. We have at least two people who are doing local political work. They rally supporters, they focus on local issues. And the foundation of all this is sort of the, the moral courage of most of our activists, but most importantly, probably Alexei Navalny, who is quite unique. He combines the political skills that would be handy in any political environment in any developed country, but he also has something unique in the courage and in the way he carries himself. And the last events, his return to Russia, despite all the risks and his inspiring messages from the courtrooms over the last month, this is, this is something unique. The, the events of the last six months are stuff of TV series and you know epic stories. So having this combination 
we don't have a recipe. We don't have an exact mm -hmm. recipe what we're doing now, but we will be solving these issues. But we, we're not some sort of, you know, clever geniuses of political science. We are just the instruments of historical process that happens in Russia that is transitioning from, you know, centuries of authoritarianism to something something more, you know, normal, something more democratic, something more fitting for Russia as a European country. And, you know, we are the cogs of this wheel of history. So I wouldn't focus too much on what tactical moves we'll make to make up for the physical absence of Navalny. But the important thing is that we have the structure the resolve and the resources to figure out how to confront the challenges that are, you know, changing daily. Yeah, I want to get I want to get Maria to kind of weigh in on what you because I think what you're saying is correct, and I would like to hear Maria's thoughts on it. But Maria, I also want to get you to weigh in on something that's pretty much your your specialization, um, and that is this the socio cultural political context that this is all taking place in. One can view this network that Navalny has built as a manifestation of changes that have been going on in Russian society. And Maria, these are things you and I have been talking about over the years a lot. The, the increase in urbanization, the changing demographics, the changing media consumption, the generational change. This, so this network is almost like it is a, the institutional manifestation of changes that have taken place in Russian society that the existing power structures no longer meet the needs of. If you could comment on that, as well as reacting to Vladimir's comments. Oh, yeah, well, I absolutely agree with Vladimir. I think he certainly knows um, the situation uh, much better. And also, I believe that it may be wiser not to be too explicit about the subsequent tactics of the of Navalny's offices, you know, because who knows who, <laughs> who might who be listening. Maybe Putin's listening to the podcast. Yeah. That'd be very, really cool. At least uh, some Pol of Pol his fake. Pol Pol <laughs> I know that some of his uh, fake Twitter accounts certainly are uh, big fans of our podcast. Um, <laughs> but talking of the generational change, uh, you're absolutely correct, Brian. My personal experience with, again, members of Navalny's offices in the regions, St. Petersburg, Kursk, uh, a number of other uh, places where I've been, I always try to meet with Navalny's uh, team players there. Of course, they tend to be on the younger side. Um, essentially, younger people who don't uh, find really, don't see uh, a future for themselves under the current political system Putin has built. And increasingly, I have to say increasingly, Putin's regime understanding that essentially it lost grip over uh, uh, the younger generations in Russia, essentially pushes them away even further. As they demonstrated by increasing attacks on the internet. Just yesterday, actually, the war attempt to slow down uh, Twitter by Russia's officials. Uh, it's the first in the series of upcoming attacks on the internet, since the Kremlin certainly understands that's where the challenge is. There is also a new bill uh, that's currently being passed uh, in second reading by State Duma that attacks uh, Russia's educational system. So all kind of educational programs that did not receive permission from Russia's Ministry of Education are currently under threat as a result of this bill. It's not exactly clear how it's going to be implemented, but it certainly is, again, targeted at the younger generation that are trying to learn, you know, they're trying to kind of figure out ways, paths, forward and ways to improve the society. And, of course, talking in terms of the support 
of Putin regime, it's very clear that the generational divide is becoming uh, sharper and sharper. Uh, some of the recent data, of course, uh, continues to confirm that Putin's support is the lowest among uh, the generation, the younger generation, 18 to 25 uh, year old. We have discussed that this uh, group primarily opposed uh, Putin's constitutional changes that allow him to stay in power after 2024. And uh, there's also a Levada survey, uh, for example, about attitudes toward Alexei Navalny that show that up to 30 percent of 18 to 24 year olds approve of Alexei Navalny activities, um, as opposed to, for example, 13 percent in the group 55 plus, uh, the group that uh, sticks with uh, Putin. From this perspective, of course, it's a very clear fight between the future and the past, and uh, mm. the past being represented by Kremlin regime and constant appeals to the sacred victory in the Second World War, which, you know, few people uh, have any memory left. And, of course, the future being represented by these younger groups on which uh, Navalny's team uh, relies uh, primarily. It was, I have to say, very visible in St. Petersburg during this January protests in support of Alexei Navalny after Alexei was jailed where, especially in St. Peter's, since I have a number of friends uh, who tr took part in this protest, they actually have described there was a lot of young faces. The protest was very, very successful. Thousands and thousands of people uh, showed up. It's one of the largest protests in St. Peter over the last perhaps 20 or 30 years. But unfortunately, primarily younger groups, uh, not older generations. And I think it's one of the key challenges going forward is trying to bring, again, older groups, trying to explain to the older groups that this situation in the country cannot be sustained and try to bring them to join this protest in the future. I think it's one of the challenges for Russia's opposition going forward. Yeah, no, it's almost like this organization has been ready. It meets the needs of the changing demographics of Russia. Um, the metaphor I always kind of think of when I think of this group is the Solidarność movement in Poland that, remember, existed for like almost 10 years before it was successful. Right. And created almost this alternative political structure and this alternative civil society that was ready made when Poland became free. So um, it's a very optimistic way to look at it. And since I'm an optimist at heart, that's a great way to segue into our second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and take a look at the effectiveness or lack thereof of Western sanctions against Russia. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from London is Vladimir Ashurkov, executive director of Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Maria Snegava a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, and please leave us a rating and review if you do. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. Не слушал. В России сегодня вступают сейчас. в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже безопасности. С новым годом вас. С новым веком.
So, Vladimir, back in January, you published a list of eight figures in Russia whom Navalny wanted sanctioned. But I wanted to get the ball rolling about a discussion of sanctions. Why those eight? What was the logic here? I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just curious why the logic of those eight. And how satisfied or dissatisfied are you with the current regime of sanctions uh, the West has imposed in response to Navalny's poisoning and imprisonment? The list of eight, its immediate significance was that we discussed these particular individuals with uh, Alexei before he boarded the plane to Moscow. Shortly after this list of eight was published, I uh, made public a list of 35 people, the business and political elite of Russia, that we were working with Alexei for a few months before his return to Russia. And I sent this list with suggested recommendations for sanctions to the U.S. administration, to the U.K. government, and to the European Commission. And we understand that sanctions are inherently a political process, and it goes through different bureaucratic political processes in respective countries, and there are many factors that are taken into the consideration. So I see my role as I have to make our views known, I have to make them heard, but really we we don't really have control about what goes on in these respective administrations. In terms of effectiveness, I mean, sanctions is, we you have to understand the sanctions work that we do in the context of our overall strategy. We genuinely believe that any change in Russia will come from within Russia, from the efforts of Russians. And, you know, 90, over 90% of what we do happens in Russia. Naturally, we engage with Western governments and individual sanctions is something that Alexei Navalny and our team have advocated for years. The importance of sanctions, I think, is, is threefold. First of all, it's, you know, punishing the perpetrators of crime, of corruption, and of human rights abuse. Second, I think probably more important is a deterrent factor. There are probably, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 top people in the Russian power structure that are part of this system of economic and political corruption. A lot of them have assets in the West. A lot of them like to go to, you know, Fort the Marmies and Miamis of this world. And if you sanction top 100 of those, the rest will take notice and they will wait whether it makes sense for them to, you know, support this corrupt regime or to be less active in supporting it and, you know, enjoy the lifestyle that they are used to. So, and the third factor is that We're not asking the Western governments to do it for the sake of Russians. We believe that it's genuinely in the interest of Western governments because the export of corruption that comes out of Russia is polluting the Western political systems. We've seen it in many cases from meddling in elections to cyber hack attacks to the recent rumors or or information that surfaced through Washington Post that Russia was actively undertaking a 
disinformation campaign aimed at putting doubt in people's minds against vaccines. So you really, by adopting sanctions, you're helping yourselves. So that's basically our, our message. And what we want the Western governments to say to these people is that, well, we suspect you've been involved in some bad things. And the right or the appropriate forum for you, for these crimes to be investigated and tried is Russia. Unfortunately, Russia in current state is not, you cannot expect independent investigation and trial there. So for the time being, until that happens, please stay away from our countries. Please stay away from our shops and beaches. Please don't stick your dubious money into our financial system. It's as simple as that. We're not putting you in jail. We're not saying that you're criminals. Just stay away until the situation in Russia resolves itself. Yeah, no, you touch on something interesting here. I want to move to Maria in a second, but I just wanted to briefly touch on something here because there is a there's a pretty healthy debate going on right now about sanctions in not just here in Washington, but in all Western capitals. And it's the debate between individual sanctions right? Punitive individual sanctions against individual people and more broader structural or sectoral sanctions that would like block off entire types of economic activity. For example, a block on the buying and selling of Russian sovereign debt or a SWIFT ban or blocking Russian energy projects. Um, and there's a, there's a debate on this. I'm not a sanctions expert. So I don't really have a strong opinion on this, but I wanted you, you because you have consistently, you and Navalny have consistently recommended only individual sanctions. And I was wondering if you could speak to that briefly. Sure. Well, the case for individual sanctions is clear. These are people with a substantial degree of certainty are involved in corruption, are involved in oppression of civil and political rights, are involved in illegal decisions, incarcerations, beatings, etc. So why not, you know, punish them and deny them access to your countries, to your financial systems? The case for sectoral sanctions for more broad economic sanctions is really not clear for me. They have been in place against a number of countries, the most sort of prominent being North Korea and Iran for decades, and their efficacy is unclear. So we, we maybe this case can be made for these economic sanctions, maybe not. We're not supporting that. But for individual sanctions, it's really a slam dunk. It's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, I would agree that the individual sanctions are a no-brainer. I would argue that the sectoral sanctions are more effective at, as you said, protecting us, protecting the, these are the, the Western countries from the malign influence that comes in from Russia, which often comes in via a lot of this so-called, you know, allegedly legitimate business activity. So that's just, that. those are my thoughts on it. If we want to contain Russia's malign influence through sanctions, I think the way to do that is through sectoral sanctions. If we want to punish Russia for specific acts, well, then individual sanctions seem to be the way. That's that. Those are those are my my thoughts on it, Maria. I wanted to bring you into the discussion here because you just authored a report for the European Parliament on sanctions uh, and on sanctions policy. 
Can you share share your thoughts with us on this? Thank you, Brian. Yeah, that's actually uh, a report from Martin's uh, Center, a respected think tank affiliated to one of the EPA groups. So this is actually where is my point of disagreement with Navalny's uh, team is, and here I definitely uh, agree with what you said, uh, Brian. We have seen uh, the West repeatedly introducing the individual sanctions in the past, and unfortunately, none of it's actually not a new policy. It's been on, in place up and, until uh, since two. 2014, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the annexation of Crimea. And so far, honestly, that policy does not seem to be very effective for two reasons. First of all, uh, yes, the individual sanctions may have consequences for the individuals concerned, uh, targeted, but they are exactly, as you said, Brian, unlikely to fundamentally uh, alternate Putin's opinion or to have broad effects on Russia's economy. That could, uh, in turn, uh, influence the opinions of Kremlin decision makers. In addition, the Kremlin spent significant resources uh, to compensate those oligarch Russian officials who get on the sanctions uh, list uh, for their financial losses, uh, compels them to repatriate their capital, and brutally uh, represses any suspected dissent. So if the expectations that is that the individual sanctions will lead to some kind of split within the elites. That, unfortunately, uh, we can be quite uh, certain about that, that un unfortunately fails to deliver. If the West wants to make the individual level sanctions effective, then uh, those policies, those measures, along with visa bans, should be com combined with a systematic effort to fight money laundering, especially for collection of the information and freezing the assets of targeted Putin allies. Uh, we know that they commonly store the assets abroad, but usually this is done for anonymous uh, shell companies or registered on uh, the names of the relatives, for example. So unless uh, those assets are targeted, that is unlikely to be effective. A similar initiative uh, starts to be uh, developed in the United States. The beneficial ownership reporting requirements in the National Defense Authorization Act, NDA, might help especially if it's uh, rigorously implemented in forms by the Treasury. I know that you had Paul Massaro on uh, the podcast, Brian, a couple of weeks ago. Specific, he's a great expert on this field. He, is a, uh, he will certainly be able to comment. But more importantly, uh, to your uh, discussion with Vladimir about the sectoral sanctions, here I certainly uh, back you, and I understand that Navalny's team cannot call for sectoral uh, sanctions uh, but perhaps for political reasons, uh, because that will give a lot of assets to Kremlin propaganda. But when we look at the effectiveness of sanctions regimes more broadly, they have to disagree with Vladimir. The sanctions on Iran actually have delivered. When they have been reinforced uh, by the West, they actually ended up contributing to Iran, adopting, uh, replacing the leadership uh, and adopting much more peaceful, much more Darwish stance regarding the West. And another successful example of sectoral sanction is the end of apartheid regime in South Africa, where similarly total comprehensive uh, economic sectoral sanctions were imposed on uh, South Africa and all blockage of the economic context did lead to uh, regime change. But of course, the question here is about the commitment and resilience of the West. So far, uh, even uh, Navalny's poisoning attempted murder has not uh, led to significant change in uh, sanctions policy on the West. And I'm hoping that perhaps under the new administration, there will be some serious rethinking, uh, reanalysis of the sanction policy. At the very least, I'll say what can be done. If uh, Europe, for example, is really scared to touch Russia's gas companies because it's very dependent on Russian gas, at least consider defense industries, uh, where Russia remains until now the world's second largest arms exporter and managed to even export its arms to Turkey, a NATO member, 
for which Turkey was actually penalized by Trump administration. But nonetheless, the fact remains a repeated violator of human rights, repeated violator of this transgression of the international ban on chemical weapons to sell its weapons to a NATO member. That's all you need to know about the Western sanction policy. Vladimir, your thoughts? Uh, I hear uh, arguments of both of you. They they have merit. I'm just not saying that the case is, you know, closed and shut. It's a point of view. It's a policy decision, but it's not, you know, a a fact, uh, and it's not something a thesis that has been proven by history and experience. Yeah, no, I don't think these two types of sanctions are necessarily mutually exclusive. I don't think, I mean, that's the one point I would make. The other is, yeah, if we are trying to, my my case for sectoral sanctions and full blocking sanctions is that if it sends a message to Putin that he has to make a choice. If you want to be part of the global economy and benefit from it, you have to abide by certain rules, like you don't poison people with nerve agents, right? That's a very low bar to clear, but Putin can't even clear that bar. You don't invade your neighbors and take their territory. You don't like uh, send chemically enhanced athletes to the Olympics. There's all sorts of things that we don't do. If you want to participate in the global economy and be a good global citizen in good standing, you got to play by rules. And if you don't play by rules, you can't be part of it. If you want to act like North Korea, you can be North Korea. But to me, that is more as an instrument of policy to protect ourselves, to contain the malign influence, much of which is coming in through things like Nord Stream or things like money laundering schemes or things like legitimate above the board investment, which is camouflaged through weak beneficial ownership legislation. So I think these two things can work in tandem. I understand politically why it's difficult for somebody like Navalny to call for sectoral sanctions, because that could certainly be used against him politically in Russia, that he's actually asking the United States or Western Europe to hurt the Russian people. And therefore, asking for individual sanctions is a much more smart move politically. We're bumping up close to the end here. Uh, we got a few more minutes to go. I wanted to give you each a chance to say any any last points you wanted to make before we wrap it up. Vladimir, why don't we start with you? Sure. I just want to pick up on your last point. Your position on you know wide scale economic sanctions as a containment measure may be internally consistent, but we both know that the political reality in all countries that we talk about in all Western countries is miles away from this position. So it's not really realistic to expect that somebody would take your words and put it into their playbook. So we have to make do with what we believe is, you know, possible. And in this situation, piecemeal, you know, sectoral and economic sanctions I'm not going to achieve anything. So maybe your point can be defended, but you cannot say, well, this is what we do and defend what the European Union, what the UK has been doing or what the US has been doing. No, I mean, my I mean, my job is to basically recommend policy. I mean, I've been doing that and the politicians, I understand it's a heavy political lift. I understand it's a heavy political lift just here in the U.S. And then when you start to bring in, you know, the allies in Europe, it's a, it's an even heavier political lift. I get that, but I just want these ideas out in the in the in the atmosphere, so uh, in the bloodstream, 
So, uh, so hopefully somebody will pick up on them, and when the political timing is right, they can be implemented. Maria, you get the last word. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, we'll just quickly jump in with a, a little bit of an optimistic note that, first of all, uh, some members on uh, Biden's administration, like uh, Peter Harrell, uh, for example, they are strong uh, supporters of this uh, sectoral policy. So not everything is lost, and it's possible that some of the sanctions policy will be reinforced. For example, uh, we know as the last round of sanctions, the Biden administration has announced that there will be a possibility to reinforce uh, the sanctions for Russia's uh, violation of the international ban on chemical weapons, including possibly targeting Russia's sovereign debt uh, market, which will probably be quite sensitive for Russia, not as sensitive as it was in the past, but still uh, quite uh, sensitive to the Kremlin. So uh, there might be uh, more change coming in the future. And of course, uh, just a nod you know, of respect uh, to Navalny and to Vladimir and all of Alexei Navalny's team more broadly, who continue fighting for against uh, the regime in increasingly hostile uh, circumstances. Thank you very much for doing that for Russia. I would second that. Thank you very much for doing that for Russia. And that's a nice optimistic note to end our program because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from London has been Vladimir Ashurkov, executive director Director of Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation, and also joining me from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you both for an enlightening and lively discussion. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Brian, for having us. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for coming. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And please leave us a rating and review. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the twitter at powervertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team 